This morning, I want to bring you a message from Matthew chapter 12. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew 12, we're going to look at verses 38 through 40. And I've entitled the message, The Definitive Sign. The Definitive Sign. Today is a day we often think about the resurrection. Uh, really, the resurrection is, is always in our minds. It should be as Christians. And uh, I want you to see in this passage what Jesus had to say as he prophesied his coming resurrection. Matthew 12, verses 38 through 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus here is talking about his coming resurrection. He's predicting it. He's, he's prophesying that it will happen. He's saying it will happen based on the fact that it was uh, in the Old Testament, that it was prophesied in the Old Testament, even through the life of Jonah. You know, Christianity really is a religion, if we want to call it that, or, or a faith, we could say, maybe better than religion, is a faith based in the resurrection. Not just our own resurrection. We don't just have faith that will be resurrected as believers, but we have faith that indeed Christ was resurrected. And so it's a, it's a religion of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have no faith. We have no doctrine. We just have bits and pieces of something called Christianity, but with the resurrection, everything comes together. Everything comes together in Christ. The resurrection is a message of victory. It's a message of victory that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead by God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a message of hope because he was resurrected. If we're in him, if we're united with Christ, we'll be resurrected. So it does have meaning for us. But first and foremost, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Both the cross, his death, and the resurrection of Christ stand really as the twin pillars of the faith, twin pillars of Christianity. Without the death of Christ on the cross, without the resurrection, we have no salvation. We have no forgiveness of sins. We have no propitiation. We have no righteousness transferred to us. We must have the death of Christ on the cross. We must have the resurrection of Christ from the dead. This is why the Apostle Paul said, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. People deny the resurrection today. Sometimes they profess to be Christians and they, they say they can't believe that someone could come back from the dead. They deny the supernatural. And Paul says, if that's the case, then you're still in your sins. Christ has to be resurrected. He has to be because God said it. And because if we are to be saved, it had to happen that way. Well, indeed, Jesus is the Son of God. He, he is the Messiah. He was sent to save sinners. And he said the resurrection was the definitive sign of his identity. How do we know he's the Son of God? How do we know he is the Messiah? Well, the Scripture says that. But even more, he says in the Scripture 
that his resurrection would be the sign that proved beyond a doubt that he was who he claimed to be. Just to give you a bit of context, as we look at this passage, you always need to know what, it, what, it's, what surrounds it, what's happened before this passage. Jesus has been teaching and preaching in his ministry. He's sort of in the middle of his earthly ministry here. He spends three years teaching and preaching before his death on the cross. And he's sort of in the middle of it here in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And he's, he's doing great works, great miracles. He's teaching, and, uh, he's teaching on salvation. He's teaching on how to be a disciple. He's teaching on how someone should follow him. And he's showing people the glory of God. He's showing people how to glorify God with their life. But the leaders of Israel are challenging him constantly. They will not leave him alone. They're always sending spies. They're always trying to trip him up. They're trying to get him to say something wrong or stumble. They're trying to show the people that this is not a teacher of God in their mind. They, they want to sort of prove him wrong. So they're debating him. They're causing controversy amongst the crowds. And so it's in this context that Jesus makes this prophecy of his coming death and resurrection. Well, I'm going to divide the sermon into two main parts. The first part is going to be what I call the worldly expectation. The worldly expectation. Many people, even today, and in certainly back then as well, had their own expectations of Jesus Christ. They didn't necessarily want a Christ revealed in Scripture. They wanted what they thought was a Messiah, what they thought the Son of God should be like, what they thought that the king who would rule over the whole earth should be like. And so they had a worldly expectation then, and many people have a worldly expectation of Jesus today. We see this by what they said. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said this to him. We need to know a bit about the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Why are they challenging Jesus? Why are they making such a big deal out of his teaching? Well, the Pharisees were one of the four main groups of the Jews in that day. If you were a Jew and you had any kind of education or, or a business maybe or any kind of income, you would be part of one of these four groups. And I won't go through all four of them, but the Pharisees were one of those four main groups of Jews in that day. Their name, Pharisee, means separated one. They were the separated ones. They were the holy ones. They were the holier-than-thou group, and they thought they could be righteous if they obeyed God's law. So the Pharisees believed that the way to salvation, the way to holiness, the way to perfect righteousness was to obey the Mosaic law, the Old Testament laws. And so they went around teaching people what they should do to obey these laws. And they set up even more laws outside of God's law to make sure you didn't even come close to disobeying God's law. So they would set up an extra layer, another fence around God's law. And they became uh, people that equated their traditions, those extra laws, tradition, with the Bible. And so their traditions become mixed with Scripture. Their traditions uh, become written down over time, and you end up studying more about what the rabbis said than what the Scriptures said. 
The Pharisees, of course, did believe in all of the Old Testament. They did believe it was inspired by God. They were not like the Sadducees. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the one written the ones written by Moses. The, the Pharisees weren't even a professional group. It's not like they were paid teachers or preachers. They were just your average businessman, your average family man, uh, your average leader in the synagogue or man who attended the synagogue. And their job was to check on everybody that they knew and everybody in town. It wasn't really their job to be paid, but sort of their, their job in their own mind is to make sure everyone else is obeying the law. And when this teacher, this new rabbi named Jesus comes along, they need to check and make sure he is following the law and the tradition that they've set up. And so that's their mindset. And they elevated traditions greatly. They had a lot of influence over the people. That's the thing about fake religion, tradition, false religion. It enslaves people. So if you tell people you must obey all of these laws and all of these traditions, and you keep telling them you have the answers, you have the key, to unlocking that, to making sure you obey all the traditions and the laws, well, then people keep coming back to you. You have the key. You have the answer. It's what we see in a lot of false religions today, false Christianities even, that you must do all of these works, and you must say these types of prayers, and you must pray this certain way, and you must come before these priests and be forgiven of your sin. Well, that's what the Pharisees taught. Obey the law, and you would be saved. Do we have Pharisees in the church today? We certainly have Pharisees in American and worldly churches today. People who are legalistic. People who teach that you can be saved by your works. Uh, we have a whole group of Christians who have elevated the oral traditions of man to be equal with or higher than Scripture. People who say you must obey what we say and not look to the Word of God first. Well, let's think about the scribes. Who were the scribes? You had the Pharisees, and then you had the scribes. The scribes were the elite Pharisees, the super Pharisees. The scribes were the teachers of the law, sometimes called in scripture, or just lawyers. Not, not only lawyers to represent you in a, in a court case. Uh, that might be the case. The scribes might do that. But even those court cases were being um, brought about by the law of Moses. So a Jewish court case would go according to the Old Testament law. Well, these scribes were experts in the law of God. They could write and copy out the law. They had it memorized, often from a very young age. And so they were the ones sent to challenge Jesus. Not only were all the Pharisees, about 6,000 Pharisees at this time, not only were the Pharisees often challenging Jesus, but they sent the best of the best Pharisees to challenge the Lord Jesus Christ. And these scribes could issue binding decisions on the interpretation of the Bible. So if there was a debate between Pharisees or just a debate between a couple of men in the synagogue, the scribes would give the determinative answer. They would say, this is the final interpretation. Well, because they were often the most educated, they would do the writing of the documents. They would do the writing of letters to people regarding the Jewish law. So we could say the scribes were a combination of professor, teacher, civil lawyer, and moralist. They were the best that the Pharisees had to send after Jesus. Well, look at the worldly expectation that these men, scribes and Pharisees, considered to be the most holy men of that day by the world, by the people. Look at what they say. 
teacher. So they have some respect. They understand the crowds are following Jesus. They understand that Jesus has some respect from the people. They start off by calling him a teacher. But it's what they say that's the problem. We want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. And a sign here is not just another miracle. A sign is a miraculous token. Show us a token, something so amazing that we have no doubt you are who you say you are. Just show us. Show us a sign. It's so easy, Jesus. Just show us a sign. Then we'll believe. Show us something really big, really amazing. Not these healings and things you've been doing. That's great, Jesus. Do something really cool, really amazing, and then it will be obvious. Then we'll, then we'll of course, have to believe in you as the Son of God, as the Messiah. Well, they were lying. They were lying. This is plain and simple. They had already seen Jesus do so many miracles. So many miracles. He, he healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. Pharisees had been present when he raised the dead. He had cast out many demons. In fact, look back up in Matthew 12, verse 22. Look at 12, 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? So the crowds see this healing. They are witnesses to an amazing miracle of Jesus. And they began to talk and, and say, can this be the Messiah, the son of David? Is this the promised one? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They just said that Jesus was casting out demons because he was indwelt by the power of Satan. They were saying that Jesus was satanic. That's the only way. Who has power over demons but Satan, they thought. And they were calling Jesus satanic. His power comes from Satan. So he goes on and tell them how that's blasphemy against God. How that's the unpardonable sin. To say that something so obviously brought about by God and the Holy Spirit could be attributed to Satan. And he says that's the only unforgivable sin. To be, to be present and see a wonderful miracle of Christ. And then attribute it to Satan? Well, they would not believe if he did another miracle. Even an obvious token, a sign that proved to, to their minds that he was indeed the Son of God. No sign would be enough for them. If they refused to see a, a miracle and, and they refused to attribute that to God, another one is not going to help them. Nothing was enough for them. Their point here is, do what we say, Jesus. You should do what we say. Give us another sign. Uh, do this. Do that. Do what we say. Dance like we want you to, because we know the scriptures. We know what the Bible says. We have our tradition. We know, Jesus, that you need to keep doing things because we can test you like that. But, verse 39, look how Jesus responds. He, he rebukes them. He really condemns them. Their worldly expectations will be rebuked. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. All these Jews who have the ability to see miracles and then still not believe in Christ, they're an evil and adulterous generation. 
The word evil here means to be morally or socially worthless, wicked, evil, bad, base, worthless, vicious, degenerate. So much for calling names. Jesus is saying they are degenerate. They are wicked. They are indeed people who refuse to believe in Christ and they won't obey his teachings. Even if they say they believe and follow him around for a little bit, they don't end up obeying his teachings. Instead, they just want something more. Show us something more. Show us a new sign. And that's evil. It's, it's evil to ask Jesus to continue doing signs when he's done more than enough. He's taught and said more than enough to, make them, uh, to give them proof. And, and indeed, he's done more than enough with miracles for them. But they want something more spiritual, better than any prophet's ever done. They want to see and experience something momentous. Show us something. They're speaking to the one who upholds all things. Jesus could do anything, anything he wanted. But that's not the point of his ministry. That's not why he came. He didn't come to show off. He didn't come to entertain. He didn't come to to get cheers and claps from people. He often said things like this that sent people away. He often called them evil and adulterous, which meant that would drive them away because he's concerned about the truth. He wants people to come to him because of who he is, because of the truth that he gives, not because they're getting what they want. He calls them evil. He calls them adulterous. This might, might be even worse. Adulterous was a, a term used in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. And it described Israel's adulterous relationship with God throughout the Old Testament. Like a wife who commits adultery, Israel had turned away from God many times. Israel often turned away from the one true God that had saved them out of Egypt, and and they were turning to false gods. And they were chasing after false gods over and over in the Old Testament. It's why they got sent into captivity. It's why God brought the Babylonians and before that the Assyrians to destroy the people and the cities of Israel. Now some were saved. There was a remnant, of course. But God brought punishment upon them. There are many verses that speak like this of an adulterous uh, Israel. Probably one of the best for our purposes is Jeremiah 3.8. Jeremiah 3.8. He says, And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. So Israel was so adulterous that God had cut them off. He had given them a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah, the southern kingdom at this time, so the Israel's the northern and Judah's the southern kingdom, her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot, a prostitute also. So the whole nation is adulterous. And when Jesus uses this term, they would have remembered their Bibles. They would have remembered, these Pharisees would have remembered that this is a description of how pagan Israel used to be. And Jesus is saying, look, you Jews have come back from Babylon and you think you've gotten rid of of pagan worship. And they had gotten rid of outside pagan worship. But in their hearts, they still did not follow God. In their hearts, they still were cheating on God, committing adultery against God. Not through worshiping statues or trees, but through their own desires. Their desires were only for themselves, not for God's glory. Their desire was to create a king, a Messiah in their own image here. Show us a sign. 
this idea of adultery is, is such a strong term that James, the apostle, will use it later in his letter, in James 4.4, and he's rebuking Christians in the church who are sinning. James 4.4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. An adulteress to God is an enemy of God. And this is someone who loves the world so much that they don't truly love God in their hearts. They love the world and the world's expectations. Well, how's that for a following? How's that for trying to build a a megachurch? Jesus, according to many modern books and lessons uh, and teachings, would not do very well when it comes to church growth. Because he's telling people how sinful they are. He knows that they're going to run away. He knows that they're not going to believe in him. You notice he's not saying nice things here. He's telling the truth. Because the truth is what matters. The truth is what people need to hear. Also recall that he's not speaking to pagans here. They're pagans in their heart, but they're, they're outwardly professing to worship God. They're not atheists. They're not going around saying we don't believe in God and therefore Jesus is correcting them. He's speaking to those who think they're already walking with God, who, who think, we might say today, who think they're Christians, who think they're saved. These are people who think they're already righteous, who say, I'm going to heaven. I believe in God. I'm, I'm doing good things. My good outweighs my bad as long as I try, as long as I, I try to do more good than bad. Uh, God will see that. That would have been their idea. Of course, they would have been a little more forceful and more vocal. These were really legalistic people, but today we see a lot of this in America. If we just obey God or we just obey the law, if we just obey the Old Testament, then we'll be a more godly person and we'll go to heaven. But Jesus teaches throughout Scripture that you, you can't just change your, your outward lifestyle and somehow be saved by that. You can't morally reform your life and that suddenly gets you into heaven. There's no moral reformation. In fact, he said, you cast out a bunch of demons and more are just going to come in. Talking about your own moral reformation of your heart. If you try to do it, you just end up becoming more sinful. You just desire to do more sin. If you're an unbeliever trying to kill sin, you just end up sinning all the more. And so he's saying, look, it's worse to be self-righteous. It's worse to be self-righteous than a pagan. The self-righteous want a sign from Jesus. They want Jesus to do whatever they desire. The pagan knows nothing about Jesus. You tell him, it's the first time he's heard anything. The self-righteous think they already know it all. That's why Jesus said he didn't come to save the righteous, the self-righteous. He came to save the lost, those who had no hope, those who knew that they were sinners. So here's the proof of that. He's saying, look, you cannot expect me to do what you think I should do. I'm here from God. I'm not here to give you signs. They craved a sign. You notice that word in the NASB here. They craved it. They desired it more than anything. They, the word here is a longing desire for something. That was all they thought about around Jesus. All the Jews were saying, give us a sign, give us a sign, give us a sign. The greatest desire was that Jesus would show them something. They didn't want to know about salvation. They didn't want to know about how to glorify God. They just wanted their own desires fulfilled. Show me something to impress me. They craved that. Well, we often see this in the modern church, unfortunately, where where there's a a great entertainment going on. Uh, People wanting to see something amazing. 
I want to go to church to see an amazing show. Fireworks, rodeos inside of shows, wrestling matches inside of churches. All of these things so people can be entertained. I think Jesus would say that's evil, that's wicked. I think Christians can stumble sometimes and and chase after signs. But I think also a lot of unbelievers come into churches and desire to see some kind of show. And this is a rebuke for us here. That's evil, that's wicked, that's adulterous. We come to seek Christ. We come to seek Christ and who He truly is. And the only sign we need is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's my second point. So first point, the worldly expectation. What does the world expect? They expect for Jesus to show off. For Jesus to act like they think He should. But what does the Bible teach? What does Jesus teach? Number two, the divine authentication. Worldly expectation was number one. Uh, Divine authentication is number two. Jesus will authenticate what he's saying. He will authenticate who he is. God will confirm who Christ is. The Spirit will confirm who Christ is. And all of that will happen in the resurrection. That's all that's needed, Jesus says. My resurrection will prove beyond a doubt who I am, he's saying. But here's how he says it. He puts it in a way that challenges them to look back to the scriptures. And yet no sign will be given it. No signs will be given to this generation, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. There's no sign that they need except for one. Jonah the prophet. That sign. So the rest of Jesus' ministry, he's going to continue to heal lepers. He's going to continue to, to give the blind sight. He will continue to cast out demons. But he's not going to give these self-righteous people any more miraculous signs to prove his divinity. The only sign he's going to give them is the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. When it comes to those who refuse to follow Jesus, they're not lacking in evidence. It's not as if they didn't have enough evidence. And Jesus isn't even saying to them, look, I'll give you one more sign. No, Jesus is saying nothing else is needed but the sign of Jonah. That's it. The sign of the resurrection. That's all I need. Now only God can change a person's heart. We need to realize that. Only God can change a person's heart. And that's through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates. gives new life to a person. New spiritual life. Men and women can't be convinced by more and more proof. They might be convinced that you know, the Bible sounds more true or more historical or better than they previously thought. But it's not as if doing more things for them is somehow going to change their heart and their mind. There's no sign that Jesus could do that would convince a depraved heart to believe. Before we talk about the sign of Jonah, let's go over to Luke 16. Go over to Luke 16, verse 27. And I want you to see that even someone being raised from the dead will not change a dead heart. God has to change the dead heart. When God changes the heart, all we need to do is believe in Christ who died and was raised again. That's enough of a sign right there that Christ was raised again. But an unbelieving heart is not going to be convinced by more signs. Luke 16, 27. Uh, We're jumping into the end of this parable or story of the rich man And Lazarus, you remember the rich man didn't give anything to poor uh, Lazarus. He he sat outside the door of this rich man's house. 
And Lazarus was trusting in God. And he was begging for food. And the rich man gave him nothing. So Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man goes to hell. And he's in torment. And he's saying, can I just have a little water for my tongue? It's so hot. I'm in torment. Can I, can I go back and see my brothers? Tell them how bad this is. Maybe they'll listen. Maybe they'll have faith. Maybe they'll believe. In verse 27, and he said, he says to Abraham, who's talking to him, uh, then I beg you, Father, uh, that you send him to my father's house. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them. Send Lazarus to see my brothers then, so that he may warn them, so that they also don't come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the Bible. They have the recorded acts of God through history. They have the recorded theology. They have the recorded gospel in the Old Testament. That's all they need. Look how he backs it up, though. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, the rich man says, no, Father Abraham. But if, if someone goes to them like a, a dead man, Lazarus, if he comes back and goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. They'll repent if they see somebody who's come back from the dead. That's a big sign. Somebody raised the dead and they're talking to them. But Abraham said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Even if Christ comes back from the dead, a, a wicked, stony heart will still reject that. So it's not as if Jesus could just keep on performing for these Pharisees and somehow prove to them, prove to them that he was the Christ. Your friends, your family members who are unsaved, preach the gospel. Preach, preach that we're sinners before God. Tell them that we are indeed sinners and need to be saved by Christ. Preach the gospel, that he died on the cross for sinners, that he was raised again for sinners. Don't, don't try to convince them by stacking on one proof after another. Convince them through the scriptures, and God actually will be the one who convinces them in their hearts. Well, what is the sign of Jonah? Jesus says that's all they need. That's all that people are going to get, the sign of Jonah. And even then, some won't believe, but he does have a definitive sign that he will show the world. And if they don't believe in that, then they'll be condemned. They'll be judged. If they do believe in that, then of course they're saved. They're saved from judgment. Verse 40. Jesus explains what this sign is. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. He quotes here from the Old Testament. In the NASB, it's in all caps. It's a quote from the book of Jonah. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. Just to recall the story of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet of God and he was commanded by God to go to Nineveh, a pagan city, an evil city that was the capital of Assyria. And these Assyrians were going to come later and destroy Israel. And I think Jonah knew that and he did not want to go. Why would God send him to a pagan city? They're just going to hear the gospel, the good news that they can repent and not be judged. And they're going to change their hearts. God's going to save them. God's going to grant them a change of heart. So Jonah refused to go. And so he went down to the coast and took a ship to Tarsus. And instead, 
God brought a storm on the ship. So Jonah's trying to run away the opposite direction to Tarsus. And God brought a storm. And they thought that the ship is going to sink. So the sailors on the ship, they threw Jonah out because they, they knew it was him. He, he told them, this is why it's happening. God wants me to go somewhere and I'm not. So they threw him out. Jonah said, throw me out. And so he'd rather die, Jonah did, than see these Ninevites saved. And they threw him overboard. And it says that he was swallowed in Jonah chapter 1, that he was swallowed by a great fish. A large fish or whale, either one fits the Hebrew word in Jonah. Jesus just calls it a sea monster. So it could even be some kind of extinct animal that we don't know exactly what it was. But this huge fish, this huge fish-like creature, swallows up Jonah. And in Jonah 1, verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So he prays in the stomach of the fish, Jonah does. He calls out to God, and after he does that, he is spit up by the fish three days later. He vomited up on the dry land. And when he goes to Nineveh to preach, the people realize what happened. Either he told them, or his skin was bleached from the stomach acid of being in the fish, or people were on the beach whenever he gets vomited up near the city. Whatever happened there, they knew of this. And they listened to his message because that was a sign from a mighty, awesome God. If a God can cause this man to survive after being in that monster for three days, well, we better listen to his message. We better listen to his gospel of repentance. And they did. They, they ended up being saved. They ended up repenting as a city. Well, that's the sign that Jesus is pointing to. The sign that Jonah lived. He was pretty much dead for three days. And then he gets spit up. It's almost like he came back to life. Now, Jonah never actually died, but Jesus is making a, a comparison here. And he's saying that when that happened, people took note of it. It was a sign and they listened. If you continue reading in Matthew, Jesus says that they listened to the preaching of Jonah. The Ninevites did. And it will be better off for them in the resurrection than it will be for the generation that rejects Jesus. Well, the sign of Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish. So Jesus continues and says, So will the Son of Man, we're back in Matthew now, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign from God that Jonah was a true prophet, that Jonah was actually sent by God, the sign was that he could survive for three days in the belly of this great fish-like monster. No one can do that. That must be a miracle. It must be a miraculous supernatural event by God. When Jesus says he's going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, he's talking about his death and his resurrection. He's saying that he'll be three days in the tomb, dead, and then he's going to arise from the grave. And he's going to be seen by others. Just like Jonah was seen by others, Jesus will be seen by others after he comes back from death, after he's resurrected. Well, three days and three nights. It sounds like a bit longer than what we're used to thinking of. Normally, uh, we do think of Jesus as dying on Friday, right before the sun sets. And then, we know or, or can read the gospel accounts and see that he's raised from the dead right before the sun comes up on Sunday. In fact, we're calling this Resurrection Sunday. We believe this is the day Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, some look at this 
A lot of Christians I, I still see every year around this time, Christians online arguing about when was Jesus resurrected and, and even more so, they argue when did he die on the cross? Because three days and three nights. So he must have been crucified on Thursday, some say. Some argue for Wednesday because they want to take this verse and sort of forget the other verses in the Bible and just focus in on three days, three nights, 76 hours. Well, a big problem with that is in the rest of the gospel accounts, even later in Matthew, Matthew 26, 17, for example, it says on the third day. It'll say after three days. He died, and on the third day he was resurrected. Jesus himself says, I will be resurrected. I will be raised on the third day. He prophesies that many times in his ministry. Now, the key to understand this three days and three nights, the, the key is that in the Hebrew mindset, in the way that they reckon time, three days and three nights is a phrase. It's an idiom. It's a way to say on the third day. That's the way you said it. We have a lot of idioms in English. We'll say a certain thing that makes no sense to people who are learning English for the first time. But we all understand what it means. Well, that's the same way in the Hebrew language. We see many examples in the Old Testament like this. I'll give you one from the book of Esther. Esther 4, verse 16. Esther says, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa. Fast for me. She's about to go in and see the king. So she says, Fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. So don't, don't drink, don't eat anything for three nights or three days. And I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Probably familiar with that story. So she says, go fast for three days, three nights. Now later in chapter 5, verse 1, here's how it starts. Now it came about on the third day. On the third day. It came about that Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's room. So it's just a way of saying, on the third day, this is going to happen. Three days and three nights means on the third day. So Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week. We know that. Luke 24.1 says the women went to the tomb the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday. Now, we don't think of it like that because we worship on Sunday and the work week starts on Monday. But it's not like that in ancient times, both the, the Hebrews and the pagans and the, the Gentiles saw that Sunday was the first day of the week. So they go on Sunday. They don't see him in the tomb. They know he's been resurrected. So how do we make sense of this? Well, in total, Jesus was in the tomb about 36 hours. It was about 36 hours. He, he goes into the tomb. He, he dies around 6 um, that night or before 6 that night. They take him in to the tomb. He dies around three. They take him into the tomb by six o'clock. That's before the sun sets. So that's part of the first day in the Jewish mind. To the Jews, even today in Israel, the day starts at sunset. Sabbath day starts at sunset on Friday night. So that's day one because the sun's still up when they put him in the tomb. Then the new day starts when the sun goes down. That's day two, what we would call Saturday, Sabbath day. And day two goes from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. Then sunset Saturday starts day three. And then Jesus is raised before the sun comes up that morning, just before sunrise or, or right around that time. So if you have any part of a day, 
in the Hebrew mind, you just can say the whole day. So three days, three nights, Jesus is in the tomb for three days in the Jewish mindset. And he's raised on the third day. The scriptures are true. The scriptures are inerrant. We just have to put it all together to understand what God is trying to tell us. We have to study. We have to compare. Well, what does it mean that Jesus was raised on the third day for us? What does that mean for us? We've already established that Jesus prophesied that it would happen. He quotes from the Old Testament and says that Jonah's, that Jonah's uh, time in the fish was a, a type of the Christ. Uh, a type is in the Old Testament and the anti-type is in the New. That's just scholarly language for the fact that it's a small example in the Old and Jesus is the large example in the New. We've seen that God has done all these things to confirm that Jesus truly is the Son of God. What does that mean for us? Well, it means so much for us. More than we have time to cover today. Uh, We don't have time to go through everything that it means for us. I just want to give you a few examples before I conclude this sermon here. What this means that Jesus was resurrected on the third day, that he came back to life, that God brought him back, that Jesus raised himself, that the Spirit raised him. It means that it provides regeneration for believers. The scriptures teach us in the New Testament that because Jesus was resurrected, we can now be saved. We can now be brought back to life, spiritually speaking. Romans 6, for example, speaks of the fact that when we're baptized, that pictures what happens in our hearts. What happens in our hearts? We're united with Christ in his death. We're united with Christ in his resurrection. We go down, we come up. The fact that Christ is raised again allows us to be born again, allows us to be regenerated. Well, also, it secures the justification of all believers. Romans 4.25 speaks that Christ's resurrection assures us of our justification. It confirmed our justification. And it assures us that we'll never be condemned by God. We'll never be condemned. We can't lose our salvation if we're trusting in Christ. We'll never be condemned for our sins Because Christ was resurrected for us. It confirms everything Jesus taught about the gospel. It also establishes an unshakable foundation of hope that God will fulfill all his promises. If God made all of this happen, this is thousands of years recorded here in scripture, and he's fulfilled almost all of it. There's a few things that he's still going to fulfill in the future. But if he can fulfill all, all that he said about Christ, he'll certainly fulfill what he said about us as believers. That no matter what happens in this life, whether we die of coronavirus or cancer or heart disease or car accident or old age, that he will resurrect a believer. That we will have eternal glory with him. That we will get a a new body. That we will spend eternity with Christ. That he will give us things to do that glorify Him and the new creation. All of these promises that we're forgiven of our sin, that will never, ever be punished for our sin. A couple of more. He also opened the way for for Jesus. This resurrection did. It opened the way for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. The fact that Jesus was resurrected and then eventually ascended to the Father made it so that God the Father would now send the Holy Spirit. And Jesus would send the Holy Spirit to indwell believers. 
And not just indwell each believer, but form them into a body, Ephesians 2, into a temple of God. The church, not this building, the people are gathered together into a body for God's glory. And the resurrection made a way for that. One more. The resurrection guaranteed the future resurrection of believers. We've already spoken a bit about this, but the fact that Jesus was resurrected, he's the first fruits. He's the first one to come back and rise from the dead in a perfect glorified body. Well, this ensures that we'll have a new, glorious, immortal, powerful form greater than what we have now. If you're a believer in Christ, you'll have a new body and it will never wear out. It will never tire. It will never have disease. There will not be cancer and heart disease and viruses and pandemics in the resurrection. These are great promises. Those are just a few. I think one scholar has noted about 30 different things that the New Testament teaches us that came about because of the resurrection. I've just listed a few. Hopefully they've encouraged you. The point of the passage, though, that we looked at today is that the only sign that that generation is going to get, the only sign that that we're going to get, that anyone's ever going to get, to know that Christ came from God is the fact that he was raised from the dead. It's the proof. It is what's needed to confirm he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Signs aren't really the issue. A depraved heart is going to throw signs aside and not believe them. The problem is they don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in the words that he taught. And this is why we must, must preach Christ. We must preach Christ. We're not going to preach how you can do signs and wonders today. We're going to preach Christ. We're going to preach Christ because that's how people are saved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I deliver to you as of first importance. The the most important thing, Paul says, that I brought to you, Corinthians, and that you received, and that I received it first and brought it to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what Jesus is talking about. Three days and three nights in in the belly of the earth. He will be raised. And Paul says, look, that's the gospel. That's the most important thing anybody could know. That Christ died for sinners according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians, back in chapter 1, 22 through 24, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the message of the church. Christ crucified. Now listen to what Paul says. To Jews, a stumbling block. The fact that Christ was crucified, the fact that he was raised again from the dead, that's a stumbling block to Jews. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jews seek for a sign. Greeks seek for wisdom. They want more knowledge. Show me what I can do. Show me some great signs. And Jesus says, he's all we need. He's all we need. 
His death and resurrection is all we need. What do you seek? What do you seek? Do you seek a Jesus of your own making? A Jesus of your own mind? Do you seek a Jesus who will perform like you want Him to? Who will do things that you want Him to? Do you make deals with God? Deals with Jesus? If you'll just do this, then I'll really follow you, God. What are you after? Are you after your own desires or worldly expectations? Are you seeking after Christ crucified for sinners and resurrected for their salvation? If you want to find Christ and and you're not a Christian, you need to turn from your sin. You need to turn away from your own evil desires, your adulterous desires to fulfill what you want and turn to God. Turn away from yourself. That's repentance. Turn away from your own works, righteousness that you think you have and turn to Christ and turn to God and say, this is my Savior. I do believe that Christ died for my sins. I do believe he was raised on the third day. I do want to be saved by Christ. If you do that, if you're trusting in Christ, if God has changed your heart and allowed you to even say those things, then you're a Christian. You can rejoice with all of us that are believing those things. But if you've not done that, then Jesus says you're evil and adulterous generation. I know that when we all die someday, which we all will, I know and believe there'll be a judgment. And those who are in Christ will be saved and spend eternal bliss and happiness with Christ. And those who are not will be judged for their sin and be in eternal torment. So Christians, it's a great time of celebration today. We're celebrating the resurrection. For unbelievers, it's a hard time because the gospel convicts and the gospel cuts. So I urge you to trust in Christ. Why not today? Why not Easter Sunday 2020 is the day you were born again, the day you became a Christian. What a joy that would be. You'll always remember it, not because of what's going on in the world, but because what God has done in your heart. Let's pray to God now. Father, we know that you sent your one and only Son into a sinful world to die for sinners. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come to save the self-righteous. He came to save the sinner who repents, who knows they're poor in spirit. They can do nothing for their own salvation. He came to save them. He came to find them and to save them. And he's still doing that today. And so I pray that this message today, this message that got broadcast out, would encourage believers, that they would see the the importance of the resurrection, that they would worship Christ more. And I pray that unbelievers would see the truth of the gospel, that all they need is trusting in Christ and His death and in His resurrection and turning from their sin. And they would be born again. You would cause them to be born again so they could indeed say and believe those things in their heart. So we pray that would be the case today. And we glorify and honor you. In the name of Christ, our raised and resurrected Christ. Amen.